We are continuing our sermon series on the doctrine of the church, and this morning we are considering the subject of membership. Normally we preach straight through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and Lord willing, we are going to begin a sermon series in November going through the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is the longest book in the New Testament, and we anticipate that the sermon series will take over a year. And so we pray the Lord will use that time in the Gospel of Luke to bear much good fruit in us. Well, last week, we considered the nature of the church as it exists both universally and locally. What we see in the New Testament is that the Greek word that is translated into the English word church is ekklesia. And that word ekklesia means assembly, as in people assembling together. In one sense... The church refers to every Christian from every generation. We call this the universal church. And so we see the church spoken of in this way, in the words of Jesus, when in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, he said, I will build my church. He was speaking of his church, his assembly of all believers that will one day all be together with him in his glorious kingdom. We look forward to that day, but there's also a sense in which that is already taking place. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 7, we read, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Those who have been saved have been united to Christ. And as we have been united to Christ, in some way we are already seated with him in the heavenly places. Even though we don't experience that in our day-to-day lives, that is true of us. But we will experience that in its fullness one day when Christ renders his final judgment, and welcomes us into his glorious kingdom. But most uses of the word church in the New Testament refer to specific local churches. For example, when Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he said, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. He was addressing problems with the church in Corinth, and he referred to this specific group of people coming together as a church, an assembly, those believers with whom you assemble regularly. Jonathan Lehman writes, the New Testament word translated into English as church, ecclesia, means assembly. And the New Testament envisions two kinds of assemblies, one in heaven and many on earth. These two kinds are the universal and local church, respectively. To become a Christian is to become a member of the universal church, whereby God raises us up with Christ and seats us in the heavenly place. Yet membership in the heavenly assembly must show up on earth, which Christians do by gathering together in the name of Christ through the preaching of the gospel and mutually affirming one another as belonging to him through the ordinances. The heavenly universal church, in other words, creates earthly local churches, which in turn display the universal church. So the question this morning then is, what does the Bible teach us about the way our membership in the universal church must show up 
in a local church. Before we begin looking at what we see in the scripture, I want to take a few moments to consider how other faithful and like-minded Christians and churches have understood and interpreted scriptures on this subject. Sometimes it's helpful to look to other brothers and sisters in Christ outside of our particular context to see how they have interpreted and applied the scriptures. The 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith is a widely used and highly influential confession of faith amongst those who are baptistic and reformed in their doctrine and theology. It's been used for over 300 years, including being used by many churches even today. It's referred to sometimes as the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. And in chapter 26, we read biblical convictions regarding the nature of the local church. I won't read the whole thing. That would take a while, but I do want to read a few uh, paragraphs that help to understand how these uh, Christians and churches have interpreted the scriptures in regards to the, the nature of the church and the need to be joined to a church. So in chapter 26, paragraph 5, we read, In the execution of this power wherewith he is so entrusted, the Lord Jesus calls out of the world unto himself through the ministry of his word by his spirit, those that are given unto him by his Father, that they may walk before him in all the ways of obedience, which he prescribes to them in his word. Thus, those thus called, he commands to walk together in particular societies or churches for their mutual edification and the due performance of that public worship, which he requires of them in the world. Then in paragraph 6, we read, The members of these churches are saints by calling, visibly manifesting and evidencing, in and by their profession and walking, their obedience unto that call of Christ, and do willingly consent to walk together according to the appointment of Christ, giving up themselves to the Lord and to one another by the will of God in professed subjection to the ordinances of the gospel." And then skipping ahead to paragraph 12, we read, As all believers are bound to join themselves to particular churches when and where they have opportunity so to do, so all that are admitted under the privileges of a church are also under the censures and government thereof according to the rule of Christ. Did you notice the language used in this confession? Language such as, He commands us to walk together in particular societies or churches. Uh, language such as uh, Christians willingly consent to walk together according to the appointment of Christ. Or the language such as all believers are bound to join themselves to particular churches. Clearly, they did not view this as something that was optional in the Christian life, but that they treated it as something that was commanded by Jesus Christ. So are they right in doing so? Does this confession reflect the commands of Scripture? Do we see this teaching in God's Word? Well, one thing I think it's safe to say is that the convictions articulated in the confession are less commonly held among American evangelical Christians today. Well, why is that? Brothers and sisters, I want us to humbly consider the possibility that the church has been more influenced by the culture than we realize. Perhaps you and I have been more influenced by the culture than we realize. Well, what do I mean? In his book entitled The Christian Gospel, Tony Payne writes, Western culture lionizes individual freedom. It's almost our core value. 
Be yourself, we are told. Live your dreams. Be the captain of your own soul. Pursue your own happiness. And don't let anyone tell you what to do with your life. As the ad for my local gym puts it, there's no right way, there's no wrong way, there's just your way. The individualist drumbeat is so relentless in our culture that we barely even notice it anymore. Similarly, Michael Horton, in his foreword of the book Church Membership, writes this. Just think of how Western culture affects all of us. Movie star John Wayne is often quoted as saying that he liked God until he got under a roof. Our singers croon, don't fence me in, and I did it my way. And advertisers appeal explicitly to our narcissism. Have it your way, and you're in the driver's seat. With all this in the air, it is easy to want the benefits, but not the responsibilities, of belonging to friendships, to marriages, to the workplace, and certainly to the church. In part, the images of self-made individuals who pull themselves up by their own bootstraps have made us suspicious of institutions. Also, a regular succession of major public scandals, as well as, political, uh, as well as a politics of resentment, impersonal and ineffective bureaucracy, and broken promises have shaken public confidence in leaders and institutions. Even people raised in churches have been let down, bruised, and abused by those who claim to be Christ's shepherds. But it's not just the culture outside the church that is to blame. Much of evangelicalism has been forged in a piety that pits a personal relationship with Jesus against the visible church and its public ministry. In part, that's because evangelicals have wanted to avoid nominal commitment and formalism, which are good things to avoid. But in the process, we have tended, especially since the 19th century's Second Great Awakening, to criticize formal church offices and the ordinary means of grace in favor of charismatic leaders and extraordinary movements. Quick and easy has beaten, tried, and tested. Rapid growth in numbers has counted more than slow growth in grace. Pragmatic results, not formal structures, have been viewed as keys to success. Along the way, many of us were raised with the evangel evangel uh, evangelist uh, evangelistic appeal, I'm not asking you to join a church, but to accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. It's not surprising that after successive movements of this kind, getting saved would have little to do with joining a church. And now there are even evangelical movements that drop church membership out of the picture entirely. They say to just show up or not. One evangelical leader celebrates the dawn of the revolutionaries who have somehow decided that being the church means not joining a church. Instead, these revolutionaries find their own spiritual resources on the internet and in informal gatherings. I share these things with you in the introduction to the sermon to bring awareness to the cultural influences that might influence or shape us as we look to the scriptures to understand membership in a local church. As we look to the scriptures, we are going to see that in the New Testament, coming to faith in Christ leads to joining a local church. Baptized believers join specific local churches. Jesus and the apostles commanded and prescribed how an individual believer relates to a local church and the leaders and how the leaders relate to the believers. We also see that Jesus gives his authority to local churches to affirm believers, hold one another accountable, and remove someone from the church when necessary. In some, local churches are not undefined, amorphous, loosely associated groups of Christians. Rather, local churches are defined groups of baptized believers who meet regularly in the name of Jesus, are committed and accountable to one another, submit to specific leaders who are accountable to keep watch for them, and whose relationships are marked by love, unity, and devotion. Membership is the term we use to describe the relationship between an indi uh, individual Christian 
and a local church. Why do we use that term? Why do we use the term membership to describe the relationship between an individual believer and a local church? The New Testament uses two metaphors that describe Christians as members. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, we are referred to as members of the household of God. We read, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Christians are referred to as members of Christ's body. We're given this metaphor of a human body where Christ is the head and individual believers are joined to this body and make up Christ's body. And Paul concludes this metaphor in 1 Corinthians 12, 27 by saying, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And what we see in the New Testament is that these metaphors that describe us as members are meant to be lived out in concrete ways with specific believers in the context of a local church. So this morning, we'll consider three things regarding the nature of membership in the New Testament. And these three things help us to see how we are to live out these metaphors in concrete ways with a specific group of believers. First, we see that membership is a relational commitment marked by love. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus said to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The relationships between disciples of Jesus are meant to be characterized by love. We are to love each other in such a way that we are distinct in the world. That means we love each other in a way that's different than the way the world loves. We understand and practice love in a way that makes us distinct from the world. We are to love each other in such a way that we are to be identified. People ought to be able to identify us by the way that we love one another. And how are we to love one another? The way Christ has loved us. Christ has loved one another the way that I have loved you. How has Christ loved us? Christ came into the world to rescue us, to save us, to give us life, even though we have all sinned against him. We've all sinned against him. We've all rejected him. We've all gone our own way. Yet Christ humbled himself by coming into the world taking on flesh, living a life without sin, resisting temptation for our sake, and then going to the cross, willingly suffering, shame, torture, and a brutal execution, 
Moreover, he suffered the wrath of God being poured out upon him for our sins. That is how Christ has loved us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. I don't think it felt good to suffer for us in that way. But he committed himself to this, to loving us in this way. Dear friends, this gets right to the heart of the gospel message. And if you're not a Christian, my biggest hope and desire and prayer for you this morning is that you will hear the gospel, that you will repent of your sin and believe the gospel. What do I mean? We are all sinners. We have all sinned against God. We are all deserving of his condemnation. But God, who is rich in mercy, has provided a way for us to escape the judgment we deserve. And he did so at great cost to himself. By providing Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as the Savior of the world. Jesus came into the world to save sinners such as us. and He lived a life without sin. He died upon the cross to take the punishment we deserve in our place. He died and was buried. But on the third day, he rose again from the grave, conquering death. And after he rose from the grave, he appeared to hundreds of people, proving that he's alive. And after 40 days, he ascended into heaven, where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And the gospel is being proclaimed throughout the world. And everyone who repents of their sins and believes in Christ will be saved. And if you're not a Christian, you are in need of salvation just like us. God demonstrates his extraordinary, magnificent, glorious love in Christ Jesus. Our hope, our prayer for you is that you will respond by repenting and believing. Be saved. And dear Christians, we must continually remind ourselves of how Christ has loved us because his love for us changes us, transforms us, and is meant to shape how we love one another and how we live together as a local church. We see an example of this in Ephesians 4.32, which says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You see this instruction for the church about how the church is meant to relate to one another? Be kind, be tenderhearted, forgive. Why? Because that's what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. That's how he's loved you. Love one another in the way that Christ has loved you. Did you notice that phrase, one another? Throughout the New Testament, we are taught what it means to love one another through a number of commands, similar to the one here in Ephesians 4.32, which we call the one another commands. If you want to familiarize yourself with the one another commands, you can grab this paper on the back table on your way out. I would encourage you to do so kind of gives a summary of these one another commands that teach us how we're to live in community, how we're to love one another as Christ has loved us. We see one other command such as be at peace with each other, love one another, be joined to one another, be devoted to one another, honor one another, rejoice with one another, weep with one another, and so on. 
these one another commands unpack for us how we are to love one another as Christ has loved us. So I encourage you to take this, to, to read these, to pray. Pray these things for yourself and for our church. Pray that they will be true of us. Pray that these one another commands will characterize our life together as a local church. One of the things we need to understand about love and how we are to love one another is that love flourishes in the context of commitment. Think about marriage. Husband and wife make vows to each other. They make a commitment to each other. And their marriage is based on that promise, that commitment to love one another because every marriage is hard at times. Every marriage goes through those difficult seasons where it's hard for one spouse to love the other. But love flourishes in the context of commitment. And what we see is that the one another commands are given to Christians, oftentimes in the context of local churches. We are called to love one another in this way, in the context of this committed relationship. As I heard one pastor say, you can't cohabitate your way into the kind of the relationship the New Testament teaches a Christian to have with the local church. You gotta be committed. Make a commitment to love one another in these ways. Of course we seek to do good to everyone, but we have a particular responsibility to love the members of our local church. In Galatians 6.10, we read, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Do you see the distinction there? We have a particular responsibility to the household of faith, to the fellow members of the household. We have this particular responsibility to do good, do good to one another. And why is that important? As a distinct people... We are meant to look different than the world, not just individually, but together. We are a society within a society. The society of the local church is meant to look radically different than the society at large. As an embassy of heaven, we are to reflect heaven. When we love one another as Christ loved us, our life together as a defined group of people testifies to the power of the gospel. We testify to the beauty and power of the gospel and the way we love one another as a distinct society, as a local church. There's a book we have downstairs in our bookstore called The Compelling Community. In this idea that the local church is meant to be distinct and testify to the power of the gospel, the way we love one another is unpacked in that book. Author writes, my friend Bill Anderson has started visit, had, uh, first started visiting our church in his early 60s. 60-year-old, 60 first started attending church. He wasn't a Christian. At the time, he taught a popular class at Harvard University called The Madness of Crowds, which teaches concepts of mass psychology by examining the phenomena of New England witch hunts, urban legends, and financial panics. But a career studying crowds did not prepare him for the local church. The diversity of the congregation impressed him. But beyond that, the genuineness of that diverse fellowship impressed him. In his words, 
It was striking from the first moments I came through the door. It was clear that something special was going on. The relationship seemed not so much unnatural as highly uncommon. So I was introduced to the idea of a healthy church, a concept that had before eluded me. The power of this corporate witness provoked him. It undermined his conceptions of Christianity, and it began the process that would eventually lead to new life in Christ. Do you see how our life together as a church is meant to testify to the beauty and the power and the glory of the gospel and is meant to be a compelling witness to unbelievers? It confirms the truth of the gospel that God has loved us with an extraordinary love in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, may that be true of us. May our love for one another, may the way that we love one another as Christ has loved us, may our application of the one another commands be a beautiful, powerful, compelling witness to the truth and beauty, power of the gospel. So first, we see that membership is a relational commitment marked by love. Next, we see that membership is a relational commitment marked by accountability. We are called to hold one another accountable. Of course, holding one another accountable is one of the ways we love one another. Not to make too big of a distinction between points one and two. We see this in Hebrews 3, verses 12 to 13, which says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. These verses remind us that we all need to take care that our hearts do not become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We should never assume we are immune to this. But what should we do? Because of the possibility that we can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, we need to look out for one another and exhort one another. We are to hold one another accountable. And watching out for one another and holding one another accountable is meant, to be, is meant to characterize our life together as a local church. And what we see is that Jesus commands and prescribes relational accountability to take place within the context of a local church. Indeed, one of the essential elements of membership in a local church is the relational accountability commanded by Christ in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. I'm going to go ahead and read this, and I encourage you to follow along. Again, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Jesus said, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two brothers along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to the church, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now we don't want to reduce membership to the corrective discipline Jesus commanded and prescribed in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20, but it is a necessary and essential part of membership as this is a command of Christ for every Christian. In this passage, Jesus commands Christians to hold one another accountable. 
Moreover, he provides a specific way for us to hold one another accountable, which involves a local congregation. If a professing Christian persists in unrepentant sin, eventually the whole congregation is meant to call the person to repentance. If a person is walking in obvious and unrepentant sin, they are meant to be called to repentance by a growing number of people. And the final group is to be a local assembly. And we know that's a local assembly because Jesus talks about where two or three are gathered in his name. He's not talking about the universal church. He's talking about a local church, a local assembly. If the person remains in sin, the congregation is to regard the person as an unbeliever, thus removing the person from the church, thus removing the affirmation of their faith so that the person is not self-deceived with a false assurance of salvation. The accountability Jesus designed for the church goes beyond accountability provided by individual believers, parents, and even the elders to include an entire congregation. And this is loving. This is loving. Because what's most important? That we know God. That we walk with him. That we receive his love. That we, com- that we re- respond to the command of Christ to repent and believe. Christ designed for the church is that Christians will be accountable to a specific local congregation, and this is good for us. In 1 Corinthians 5, we see an example where the Apostle Paul instructed the church in Corinth to apply the relational accountability commanded by Christ to a situation in their church. Sadly, they had a man in their congregation who was engaged in egregious immorality. So how was the church to respond to this? Well, here's what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul, writing to the specific local church in Corinth, said it is actually reported there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not to rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, but uh, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So in 1 Corinthians 5, 2, Paul told them, let him who has done this be removed from among you. In this verse, Paul gave the instruction to remove the man from the church to the whole congregation. He called the whole church to be involved in removing him so that he would not be self-deceived, continuing in sin with a false assurance of salvation. What is the goal of this? In verse 5, we see the goal, so that his spirit may be saved in the day 
of the Lord. That's the goal. So that someone might be brought to repentance. That they might be, in the final analysis, that they might be saved. This is what we want to see. This is what we care. We need to love people enough to do the hard thing, to warn them. Why? So they will be saved. In verses 12 and 13, he said, What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purges the evil person from among you. Some of us might tense up or recoil at the idea of rendering judgments. And understandably so, sometimes Christians have a reputation for being judgmental and condescending. And that is not good. We do want to avoid that. We don't want anything to do with that. We don't want to be judgmental and condescending. Those things are not the fruit of the Spirit. But there is a difference between being judgmental and condescending on the one hand and rendering a right judgment on the other hand. In these verses, the congregation is commanded to render the right judgment regarding those in the church. Rendering a right judgment is calling sin, sin. It's telling someone who's in obvious and unrepentant sin, brother, sister, you need to repent. That is rendering the right judgment. That is loving that is caring for their soul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, we seem to see the other side of this process. In these verses, Paul described the restoration of a repentant man who had experienced church discipline. In verses 5 and 7, he said, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. You notice here how Paul described a member of their church who had been punished by whom? By the majority. Demonstrating they had a defined group of people in their congregation of whom the majority disciplined this man. In this case, the man repented of his sin, and therefore the congregation was to welcome him back, forgiving him and comforting him, thus giving him reassurance. This is the goal. I recently had the opportunity to sit in on a member meeting of another church. I got to observe this very thing take place. A man who had previously been removed from the church as a matter of church discipline because of sexual immorality had repented and the church was able to to receive him back, affirming him. He was able to read his statement of repentance before the congregation. The congregation was able to vote to, to reaffirm him and to embrace him. And it was powerful. There were tears. There was a standing ovation. There were hugs. It was an incredibly powerful, moving moment that I guarantee you will leave a positive mark on this man's life for the rest of his life and for the church as well. Why? Because that church was willing to do the hard thing, practicing membership and discipline in the way that Christ and the apostles commanded and prescribed. Because they were willing to do the hard thing, they got to see the glory of this repentance and restoration. I'm convinced that that man will not be the same. 
and that his growth in Christ and his testimony will be a powerful witness. These passages reveal an important and necessary aspect of the relational accountability that Jesus commands and prescribes for every Christian to commit to in the context of a local church. Accountability takes on many forms, yet we all need to submit ourselves to the specific way Jesus commanded, which involves the possibility of being removed from the church by the congregation if we persist in obvious unrepentant sin. And no one, including the elders, is above submitting to this accountability. And this accountability is good for our souls. And like many churches throughout church history and today, we apply this in the context of covenant membership. Finally, we see that membership is a relational commitment marked by following specific leaders. One of the things we'll get into in more detail next week is the role of elders in local churches who have the authority to rule, oversee, shepherd, teach, guard, and lead. For now, I want us to consider the responsibility of elders to members and members to elders and how membership helps us fulfill these responsibilities. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, Peter wrote, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So elders have the responsibility to shepherd the flock of God that is among them. And shepherding the flock of God involves, at minimum, the ministry of the word and prayer. And so we believe that we need to have a biblical understanding of eldership, whereby every elder is engaged in the ministry of the word and prayer. So that's why our elders are pray consistently, regularly, systematically for the members of our church. And every elder is engaged in the ministry of the word in one way or another. And what we see is that elders are responsible for doing this type of work, this shepherding, this eldering, this pastoring for a particular group of Christians. Shepherd whom? The flock that is among you. And what are the responsibility? What are the responsibilities of Christians? Well, in Hebrews 13, 17, Christians are commanded, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Christians have a responsibility to a particular group of leaders or elders. Christians are commanded to obey and submit to their leaders in such a way that their work is a joy. So how do Christians know which leaders to whom they are to submit? And how do elders know which Christians for whom they will give an account? Through membership. It's through that commitment through that self-conscious commitment of the individual believer saying, I am committing myself to this church. I am submitting myself to this church and these elders. And the church saying, yes, we are affirming you are a member of this church. You are a brother or sister in Christ, and we are taking responsibility for you and your discipleship. That commitment shapes and helps us understand and brings definition to and helps us fulfill the responsibilities that we are all given in Scripture. Brothers and sisters, in order to understand membership, we need to understand the commands given to Christians, to leaders, and to local churches. 
And when we hold these commands together, we begin to have a biblical understanding of membership in a local church, which is good and good for us. Jonathan Lehman provides a definition that reflects what we've seen in these passages of Scripture. He writes, Membership is a relational commitment between a Christian and a local church marked by the church's affirmation of their faith and oversight and of their their discipleship in the Christian's submission to living out his or her discipleship in the care of the church. And so when we think about membership at the heart of it, the essential element of it, is that there is a commitment a self-conscious commitment between the individual believer and the local church to fulfill the commands that Christ has given to us. Christ, who is the head of the church. If you're looking for a church to become a member, I'd encourage you to participate in our upcoming membership class. In our membership class, we begin to unpack this in greater detail, and that's going to be taking place on Sunday mornings, 9 o'clock in the morning, beginning on October 22nd. If you're looking for a church, if you're thinking about this, again, I'd encourage you to participate in that. It's a helpful way to continue to grow in your understanding of these things. If you are a member, I hope this sermon helps you to better understand your role as a member and what it means to be a member of Christ's body with a specific, particular local congregation. I hope you will see the responsibility you have to help to create the kind of community and society that Christ commands us to be. I hope you will be encouraged and challenged to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. I hope we'll all be committed to doing good to everyone, but especially to those of the household of faith. I hope we will commit ourselves to each other, renew our commitments to each other, to love one another in such a way that together, as a group of people, we will demonstrate, proclaim, show forth evidence of the beauty, the power, and the glory of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May that be so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you, we worship you. You are the one true and living God, and there is no one like you. Nothing compares with you. We thank you and praise you for the love that you have shown us in Jesus Christ. You give us all good things in Christ. We pray that we will understand, know, personally, receive your love, be continually changed and transformed by your love, that we might love one another in the way that you have commanded us. We pray that we, as a local church, would proclaim the beauty and the power and the glory of your gospel through our lives together as we seek to apply all the one another commands in Scripture. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.